Welcome to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference podcast presented by ESPN and 42 Analytics. This is Jessica Gelman, who along with Daryl Morey co-founded and chair the conference with a fantastic group of MIT Sloan students each year. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Good afternoon, and thanks again for joining us at the 2021 Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. My name is Jack Blasberg, and I'm a first year MBA student at MIT Sloan. And it's my pleasure to introduce our panel, Women's Sports, The Time Is Now. Our panelists today are Kathy Engelbert, Commissioner of the WNBA, Kate Johnson, Director and Head of Global Sports and Entertainment Marketing Partnerships, Content and Media at Google, Alexis Ohanian, Founder of 776 and Founding Investor of Angel City FC. Our panel will be moderated by Jessica Gelman, CEO of the Craft Analytics Group. The panel will run for 35 minutes and we will leave 10 minutes at the end for questions. Please use Twitter to submit questions for our panelists using the hashtag, the time is now. Questions will then be selected by the moderator. With that, I'll turn it over to Jessica. Hey, thanks, Jack. Uh, this is a topic near and dear to my heart. I am loving the variety of perspectives that we have on this panel. We have Kathy, who has broken barriers at the highest level of business and sport. Alexis, an entrepreneur who sees trends before they happen. And Kate, a marketing expert who has, to, has led two of the most recognizable brands in the world. So a few facts to get us started. In the late 1960s, when the NBA was a similar age to the NBA today, which is 25 years, teams were valued at $2 million. Today, the most recent, uh, in, the most recent one that we saw is Golden State. It was valued at $4.5 billion. That's a 17% CAGR, which is 50% higher than the average stock market returns during the same time period. Last year, the NWSL, which is nine years old, in their Challenge Cup saw a 500% increase in viewership compared to 2019 when they were coming off of the World Cup. Most recently in the, in the women's NCAA tournament Elite Eight, those games had double the engagement on social media than the men's Elite Eight games. However, only 1.5% of major media companies covered the actual games. Thank you to our friends at Zoom for that information. So let's get into this. Why? Is women's sports a great investment? What are the misconceptions? And why is now the time to invest? Kathy, will you start us off? Sure, Jess. It's so great to be here. Thank you so much. And I mean, I think to your question, this past year has been a great example of how society's perception of women's sports is exactly what you said, misconception. And, you know, seeing that I know this conference is all about pretty data-driven, um, I, I want to throw some data out as well. I mean, last season, we in the WNBA experienced a 68% increase in regular season average viewership, and ratings for Game 3 of the WNBA Finals were up 35% when every other major men's league was down and it was a very crowded landscape last fall. So, you know, also you have to innovate when you're a, a small women's uh, league. And we focused on, engage we went from 1.3 million fans in our seats to zero last year. So, you know, doing things like new activations, we did a tap to cheer feature in our app. It led to an 85% increase in app downloads and 140 million taps because 
our fans are skewing younger and digital natives and they have a second screen in front of them as they watch. We also had the orange hoodie, which set, you know, was top 10 in the NBA store, never have that before, um, and set records around that. So, you know, the data is 84% of sports fans are interested in women's sports. Hmm. Um, and when you look at the NCAA women's tournament, like you said, I mean, 4.1 million viewers for the championship game, most viewed um, in almost a decade. So the myth that you talked about, people not being interested in women's sports or not wanting to watch it, it's, it's totally wrong. And we saw that off of the, of the Women's World Cup into the NWSL as well. So, you know, I, I just think there are lots of misconceptions and myths. <laughs> Kate, you want to provide some perspective on why now is the time? Why now? I mean, why now has been why now for a long time in my book. Um, but that being said, I think there have been some really exceptional, you know, one of the big conversations happening right now is what did the pandemic actually accelerate? And one of the trends we've been paying a, a lot of attention to is women's sport. Um, I think it's a build of a lot of different things. I think it is um, certainly the World Cup in 2019, having some incredible momentum um, coming out of it, but most importantly because of how the athlete platform has completely evolved to a place now where um, the ownership of female athletes to own their own platform, to put their brand out there, to actually be a part of the cultural conversation in ways that are prescribed by them, not by others, not by broadcasters, um, means that, you know, all of these things are kind of converging in this moment where um, we can't ignore women's sports anymore. Um, and and this, the cultural zeitgeist, I think, is just, we're right at the center of it right now. And it makes me very excited to be alive as, you know, as someone who's very passionate about women's sports is at this moment in time, because, I think there will be a before and after. And I think we'll point to the pandemic as a, a part of that because of how Kathy's had to innovate, because of how Lisa Barrett has had to innovate, because of athletes like Serena and Alexis and, you know, Megan um, and, and the, the platforms that they're forming and coming together on um, to, to, to really take ownership of what women's sports means today in society. Alexis, you've been a huge proponent of of investing in many different things, but you are a big champion of women's sports right now as a great investment. Why now? Hmm. Well, I, I think what you've heard these women say is is hitting the nail on the head and I could throw numbers at you, right? The NWSL yeah. last year had TV viewership. It was 500% up uh, at a time when, when I know, the men's leagues were having some struggles on, on viewership. Um, now I look, my job, whether I've been an entrepreneur, obviously co-founding Reddit or an investor, in the earliest days of startups, my job is to see opportunity with like a 10-year time. Um, and, and, you know, in 2012, I led an investment in a little company called Coinbase that was going to be a bank, sort of an on-ramp for a, a weird thing called Bitcoin. And it was pretty niche. And, you know, the people who loved it, though, had an almost religious fervor around it. And that online community of very religious believers kept growing it and growing it. And there was an added value, right, to getting more people into the tribe as it grew and grew. And then that success fueled more. And, you know, here we are today and Coinbase is probably going to have a magnificent IPO next week, uh, knock on wood. Um, but like that's that's the lens through which I look at this. And yes, I have personal reasons, certainly because it, it makes me feel good proving these haters on Twitter wrong. Yes, it makes me feel good. 
um, to see my wife and so many other athletes just starting to get some of the recognition and, and payment, frankly, that they're deserved. Yes, part of it is because I have a daughter who was kicking a football around or a soccer ball around a few years ago during that World Cup. And, and I said to my wife, like, oh, look, Olympia, you could play in the World Cup one day. And, and without missing a beat, Serena said, not until they pay her what she's worth. And I said, okay, all right, challenge accepted. And that, that really was like an impetus to thinking about what is it going to take to buy and own a women's football club in the U.S. And, and sort of put us on the path to Angel City, at least my path there. But at the heart of it, this is a purely capitalist decision. The reason why this is such an obvious thing, why I think in 10 years it's going to look like one of the, one of the most obvious things laying in plain sight is that this is a new generation. And what you've heard here is like content consumption is now very much democratized. It's bottom up. When we're talking about things that have sort of religious fervor, you don't have to look much further than the diehard fan bases of women's sports, right? That fervor is there. It's been there. And only until recently now have we actually seen the data support it. It's the reason why, in terms of sheer popularity, the individual athletes who were there in the final eight of the NCAA championship were way more popular women than men. Why is that? Because the individual brands, the individual communities, the individual tribes of these athletes actually outshine their male counterparts. And, and yeah, look, at the end of the day, the institutions that have dictated who gets airtime, the, the institutions that have dictated all this stuff have been white men. And you see that bias. And what now has changed is the internet provides a leveling of that playing field for the bottom up, for, for actual fandom to speak for itself, to find a platform, to find a voice. And it's, it will snowball quickly. And, and I'm excited because I think it's, it's not just the right thing as you know, the husband of a, of, a, of a superstar and the father of a future superstar daughter, um, as a person who just wants to, to have better things. Um, this is going to be a roar of the free market in the next 10 years as we realize like, oh, wow, this was a huge business opportunity just, just in front of us that we, we missed. So I want to talk about that business opportunity, uh, Kate, from two different views for you. First is from your view from Google as someone who's sponsoring, well, and Visa before that, has, as someone who is leading and sponsoring women's sports. The other view I want you to share is as a former Olympian, world world record holder and three-time All-American in rowing at Michigan, you know, why does this time actually feel different? In 1996, after the gold rush at the Olympics, in 1999, after the 99ers in the World Cup, why is this time different? And why yeah. is Google and Visa investing now? Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I'll start with like actually the, my athlete experience. And I think about, so I competed in 2004 at the Olympic Games. Facebook was just there. Um, you know, I was still sending email blasts out to my friends and family to update them on my Olympic rowing experience and how it was going at the games. You know, today, the, the, I mean, that is a massive power shift to the athlete to tell their own story and to engage audiences on their journey in a way that I never had at my fingertips, right? So rowing a pretty off the radar sport in general in the United States. Um, I just imagine with those tools in my hands today, what I, what, what you can do for these like underserved, underrepresented sports, as well as the underserved, under, uh, underrepresented athletes. So, so there's that part of it. Um, and the role of athlete as influencer is just, I mean, that is a, that is a 2020, um, you know, reality now that brands are engaging with where, 
you know, when I now I, I translate to like my time at Visa, my time at Google, a lot of the things that um, for a long time when we were evaluating these things, you know, ultimately what you're looking to do is express your brand values alongside something that um, helps draw that affinity and that connection and that bonding to the audience that you care about and that you want to reach. And I will tell you, you know, and Kathy's got a great stat on this, so I'm going to let her land it, <laughs> not me, but like the engagement in social issues, the engagement in um, what actually is going on in, in culture around women's sports is is off the charts, right? And so, you know, one of the things that we're looking at is is how fans are actually engaging with this content and how diverse that audience now is because of what's occurring around the actual events themselves. And so, you know, I think a lot of um, what was a traditional approach for brands, you know, I'm going to come in as a sponsor and I'm going to put a logo on it and that's going to elevate it. Like that in the women's versus men's conversation was, like a no-win situation where eyeballs on in broadcast, eyeballs on your brand, on TV was like the only metric you had to go on in terms of performance of that asset that you were investing in uh, for return on investment. Like that conversation is changing so fast right now. You know, as women's sports finds a different home, whether that be YouTube or otherwise, right, to, to air its games, whether that be... Um, you know, just just like kind of rethinking the pay to play model and instead providing access in different ways. I think um, women's sports is going to push the envelope in a lot of ways that we've needed kind of these older leagues, teams, federations to think about the offering of sport. You know, I'm, I'm looking at the Olympics this summer and first of all, Team USA, I'll just speak for Team USA. I mean, like traditionally these guys place, if they were a country competing for themselves, the Team USA women alone would place fourth overall as a country in, in terms of overall medal count, right? So like that alone, the female Olympian platform heading into the summer games is going to be, be amazing. But, but the fact that there will be no spectators there too, I think again, puts the power back into the athletes' hands to tell a really meaningful story that brands can align with. Um, and that's really interesting because it enables us as a brand and what I'm looking at to reach audiences that are so much more expansive than the avid, avid sports fan, which frankly, like that window is getting narrower and narrower. Okay, you just created a, a merch campaign. I mean, seriously, <laughs> like U.S. women versus like all totally. of Germany. All oh. you, <laughs> I mean, totally. Yeah, no, I, and if I could just add in here, I mean, for Please. the U.S. USAB women's national team for basketball going for their seventh consecutive gold medal. How many people at this conference actually know that? This is the, one of the greatest dynasties ever in sport, and nobody knows about it. And that is the problem. So, um, you know, it's, it's the marketing, it's the storytelling, it's the success. I mean, seventh consecutive gold medal. And this just, you know, I, I spent 33 years in business, nothing to do with sports other than I was a former, you know, uh, NCAA Division One athlete in both um, basketball and lacrosse. But Kate totally gets it. Like she talked about that brand values match. She talked about, you know, the, the model not being just based on impressions. And I can't tell you how many discussions we're in. And I just actually posted um, an op-ed today on about beyond the weight room, it's called, because those who have followed the NCAA women's weight room story, you know, this is like so much bigger than this weight room thing. So I just posted it and basically said the biggest issue is the biggest barrier is preventing women's sports from thriving is the valuation model. And it, I, I used to do complex valuations on financial instruments and derivatives in my old days. But when I came in and saw this 
spreadsheet-driven, decades-old quantitative metrics, that rarely yields a favorable answer for women, not just in women's sports, but women in society. And that's what my op-ed's about, by the way. Um, I mean, you just look at the current media rights fee gap and the underinvestment in marketing women's sports and just the, the fee gap. I mean, we approach uh, in the WNBA the viewership of the NHL and MLS, yet our media rights fees are five to 15 times less than theirs. And why is that? Because we've had this Title IX was the 70s. I grew up and was a big beneficiary of Title IX in the 70s and 80s. And, you know, I think, you know, media companies and agencies that advise them and the whole ecosystem is totally broken in the way they evaluate women's sports. And we need to fix it because it's totally circular. You know, they say, oh, there's not enough eyes on the game, so we can't pay that much. And then we get like, why don't you pay the players more? Well, because the media companies don't pay us enough. And it's circular because they, if they don't cover us and give us exposure, we're back to the same broken valuation model. So, um, you know, that's what I see. But someone like Kate totally gets it, which we love, uh, but not many people out there get, you know, what's going on with this massive untapped opportunity. Kathy, I want to I want to come back to that because listen, you came into a really difficult situation last year. Um, you had the CBA to renegotiate, and then you had to create the Wubble and did an incredible job on on both accounts. And so the question is really, you're coming from 33 years at, uh, at Deloitte. You were the CEO of that organization when you came over to into sports and into the WNBA. What was the things you, you alluded to, some of the, the way things had been done? How are you shaking up and bringing uh, more kind of different ways of thinking to women's sports that maybe has been missing? That's yeah. allowing you to have so much impact. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it really is kind of looking at the first thing I did when I came in, because I ran a firm of 100,000 people and said, we have to have a player first agenda, have to get the players fired up to want to really play. And, and then I evaluated the ecosystem, the foundation, the quality of the game, and there's nothing wrong with the quality of the game. It's much better than I expected when I came into the league. So it's really the foundation and ecosystem and the economic model. So that the number one thing that surprised me is, you know, this isn't about an economic model. So whether you're buying an NWS into an NWSL team or a WNBA investment, the economics are messed up right now because media rights, Corporate sponsorships, less than 5% of all media coverage of sports covers women's sports and less than 1% of sponsorship dollars goes to women's sports. And so one of the first questions I asked when I came in was, what's the denominator? You know, uh, and again, an analytics you know, group like this, what, what's the denominator? And the denominator is enormous. The men's sports is enormous, big business. So that part didn't surprise me, but to move that 1%, 5%, because the denominator said, if we could just move it 100 basis points, 200 basis points, that would be success. Uh, we have to actually aspire to more. Um, but that's why I love the now is the time, because if the, as, as Kate said, she's been saying that for years. I've, I've, you know, I'm newer to sports, uh, but it is like pushing a big boulder up a hill and, you know, you get battened down sometimes, but we're getting to the top. And if we can just get it at the top and get the media rights fee gap closed, and it's all about equality and diversity, equity, inclusion, and how to build qualitative metrics into these quantitative models that are based on very old metrics. Yeah. And I think, you know, what we're really all dealing with is the systemic barriers, in some cases, unconscious biases that have been around for a really long time. And so I'm, I'm eager or interested to understand what are some tactics, obviously data and analytics being one of them, 
that, that you're trying to think about in terms of adjusting or altering or uh, these institutional decision makers, getting them to think differently? No. Yeah, I, I mean, I, 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 no, go ahead. Yeah, well, go, what do the K could start this one? Well, <laughs> I think I, I was just going to say, because I think, um, like, it's been really interesting, like, just going on the journey to, um, whether it be at Visa or at Google, just within brands in general, in terms of, like, also getting um, internal understanding of how we need to value these things differently. Because I think as, especially as marketers, I can speak from, you know, just through a marketing perspective, like whether you, whether you graduate from an MBA program or not, like you are conditioned to measure things in a very specific traditional way. And I would say like, as Kathy was saying, those ways of measuring women's sports um, has to change. So the sell-in actually for why you would invest in a women's brand, a women's athlete, a women's, um, you know, league, like that conversation is a very different conversation, you know, at least from my perspective, when I'm at Visa, when I'm at Google, when I'm at, you know, X company, um, to say that, like, the, the like, we have to understand a, a different value there. Um, one of the things that my head goes to is like, there was all this buzz, right, coming off of March Madness, when Dick's donated all of the equipment for the for the women's gym, right? My first instinct was like, that is just good business sense. Like they know that actually the purchasing power in most homes in America actually sits with women in general, right? They are, they are at home making a lot of these decisions from their office and from their living room, right? About, about like purchase intent for their families. And um, I just think like if we can move the conversation away from um, women's sport as being like, what's right, which is, which is a very important conversation to be having, but also like what just makes good business sense overall for society is where that conversation needs to be. And that requires, again, looking at things from a different measurement point of view too. Let me just throw in there, Dix, uh, on that with the, the social impact of that, their return from the investments was five and a half times higher than the other players in the market at that time. They they were aggressive, and uh, it is a woman CEO who's also now at the helm of Dick's. So they had some great advertising at the same time. Any other any other thoughts on tactics, uh, I, Kathy or Alexis? I, one of the things that made uh, being the lead investor in Angel City such an obvious business decision was because of the upside and because we knew the one advantage we have to being a still relatively much smaller league is that we can do things way more innovatively than established ones. And, and, and speaking to, I mean, the bottom up approach, right? We know our fans are on social media. We know they're communicating on social media. We're, we're creating content for them where they are. And so I agree the TV rights, those dollars need to absolutely get more in line with reality. And so in the meantime, we're saying, okay, well, what do we control? And how do we tell our story? And how do we talk about our engaged user base? We don't even have a team on the pitch yet. And yet, you know, we sold out our kit to some great numbers, to some great brands, um, because we were positioning this for what it was. In the same way we might talk about a startup and the potential of the audience and the potential for the growth and the initial numbers, the initial traction, the press mentions, those things. Um, you know, in day zero, we're selling the of what's to come. And as we start hitting milestones and watching other clubs in the NBSL hitting milestones as well, that momentum starts to spin up. And I, so I think actually coming from a small place is a huge advantage because you can declare some initial victories and, and really get some momentum. But then what made this a no-brainer was I, you know, I'm also an investor in an esports club, um, Cloud9. I love esports. I'm very long on esports. 
Um, the average American has no idea who the best League of Legends player is. Now, the average teenager, a different story. The average American, the ones who are spending money, uh, has no freaking clue. And yet there is so much hype wrapped in esports, and I think very justified, but it is clearly one of these ascendant sports that we need to pay attention to. But then I look at women's sports and I'm like, okay, there are athletes in, in basketball, in football or soccer who have already transcended the sport. You already know who Candace Parker is. You already know who Megan Rapinoe is. You already, even if you don't follow the sport, the stars have made it into popular culture. That is valuable. And so the proposition to brands is like, would you like to be aligned with female superheroes? Uh, yeah, yeah, I would. I would like that. That is great. And, and, and I, I look at the success of esports as being so validating because they've been able to rapidly sell brands and advertisers and whatnot on this dream of a thing that is, still has not become mainstream at all. And so then it becomes a, a, a proposition for us to say, okay, how do we use similar metrics to talk about our online fan base, to talk about our merch sales, to talk about things as though, you know, we drop merch more like Supreme than uh, uh, the Yankees, right? Because we're trying to build an organic brand from the bottom up that has exclusivity, that has scarcity, that has fashion and style and, and, and feeds our fan base because we can't take any of it for granted. And I think that's one of the strongest underpinnings in all of women's sports. I go back to that religious fervor. Like before the internet, the best thing those fans could do was you know mobilize and come to games and maybe tell their friends but it was very analog right today in the world of social media what those fans can do is organize uh, uh supporters groups have you know weekly zoom calls and trivia nights and be posting in our community forums and be sharing and and that has real value that now we're finally able to start monetizing and i i'm i'm excited to see how technology can play an even bigger role um but i'm i just i get so fired up for this Again, not from a societal position, even though it is something I look forward to it, because of the business opportunity. And I just can't stress that enough. Yeah, I think the marketing that you have done with Angel City has been really impressive. Your launch, um, even some of the stuff you've done with the 99ers has been impressive. And I think, Kathy, you alluded to pretty early on the focus on the players. And it's interesting just in part because of what Kate mentioned about their focus on the athletes and their stories. And you've really created a great partnership with the, with the players in the WNBA. How are, how are you, from a marketing perspective, thinking about enhancing what you're doing? I loved the orange uh, sweatshirts last year, but what's kind of on the horizon as you're coming up on your draft this Thursday? Yeah, it's a great question. Yesterday, we just partnered with Nike and unveiled new uniforms for our 25th anniversary, the only women's professional sports league to make it to 25. So think about that. Um, but yeah, the other thing is we just hired, like I came in, I go, where's my chief marketing officer? It didn't exist. So we just hired our first chief marketing officer, Phil Cook, who has a, had a long career at Nike. And, um, you know, a little bit to what Alexis was talking about, like you have to build household names and you have to build rivalries so that you know, people want to watch. And, and you know, we, we, another tactic, we just had Sue Bird did a, you know, it went a viral commercial with CarMax, but it was with Steph Curry. And, and you know, it was a great commercial about Sue being, winning her fourth championship in 17 years and being an all-star more than Steph has been. So it was, it was great. And Chinea Gumake, who was also a broadcaster, but she got a solo ad on DoorDash and Asia Wilson teaming up with Nike and Natasha Cloud with Hennessy and Converse. So I think the brands are seeing 
the value. It's that you have to build these into household names like Candace Parker, who is fabulous, just got traded to Chicago. That's going to be a big rivalry now with LA, Chicago, Vegas, Seattle. So build rivalries, build household names, uh, and then use men as advocates and, and um, for real change around this. Um, and we're trying to do that in a marketing element with the Sue Bird, Steph Curry uh, commercial. Well, I'm going to actually come back to you because um, on this topic, because you are 25 years old and the business is growing and you're seeing a lot of a lot of good things. So, you know, as a business per person, I think if I wasn't asking this question, I would be doing a disservice. Will the W spin out from the MBA and get and take outside investments so you can really infuse more into the business? Yeah, and I don't think a lot of people understand, and I certainly didn't until I came into that the W is a separate legal entity. The W has 12 teams, seven are independent, have nothing to do with the NBA. There are five NBA owners who own WNBA teams. This is a huge advantage to play off that platform. We now have an NFL owner that owns the Las Vegas Aces, Mark Davis of the Raiders, and that platform, how powerful that can be. So, um, so there, it already is hugely independent. I mean, Adam Silver, when I got hired, you know, gave me the title commissioner, seat at the table, totally separate from the NBA. So, uh, I, I think there's enormous uh, potential, uh, you know, there. So, I, I don't think it's, you know, that we need to spin off from anything. We do share a brand because it's WNBA, and I think there's a lot of positives on that. We get a lot of support from NBA teams. Uh, NBA players, retired NBA players. So uh, absolutely, we're always looking for ways to maximize the value of being associated with the brand, but having our, uh, you know, and Adam's totally given me a ton of authority to do whatever I want around the NBA and, and be empowered to do, about around the WNBA and be empowered to do that. Well, now I'm going to flip the question. So Alexis, the NWSL is an independent women's league and does not have the affiliation with the MLS. Do you think it would make sense to potentially more closely align with MLS or do you like that you're independent? And what Uh, are the advantages? I like that we're independent. I, you know, again, in evaluating this, um, I think for us being able to forge the partnership we have, uh, with LAFC, the ones we're renting stadium access from, um, has turned out to be a really fruitful partnership. I do think, look, the MLS plays a really important role here because unlike basketball, which is the, I mean, let's, I think, feel pretty comfortable saying it is the sport in America now. Um, culturally, it's the one. Um, <laughs> sorry, other, uh, sorry, American Football League. But like, for, in terms of cultural relevance, the NBA is like it. And what the WNBA and NBA have created is, is a standard, right? MLS had to come from a place where I think, again, a lot of Americans aren't even paying that much attention to, I'm going to say soccer now, uh, to soccer up until recently. Those teams have rapidly ascended over the last 10 years. But again, like the average American still can't really, like, uh, probably couldn't name more than a few MLS players, if that. They probably know a few NWSL players. That has some value for us as we go to advertisers and say, look, like, okay, the league is still way younger, still has way more to grow, but we already have this unfair advantage of recognition and brand. I mean, if you're doing brand advertising, that's the thing that matters, right? And it doesn't hurt that the women are the best in the world. Unlike our men who, God willing, are gonna win a World Cup one day. Um, um, But like, I think as it stands right now, we benefit from being separate. Um, But again, we are in such an infancy that uh, I think it's, you know, there, there's, we still have a lot to prove, a lot, a lot to prove, but, but kudos to Lisa and, and the, the, the 
NWSL for getting us going. And, you know, to Alexis's point, um, you know, if you look at even just if you look at just like Instagram, who's the most followed athlete on Instagram? It's actually Cristiano Ronaldo with 270 million followers. But, you know, Serena's got right. Alexis is 13 million. And and what's really interesting is um, when you looked at among the men's and women's elite eight teams in the NCAA this year, eight of the top 10 most followed players were women. And I mean, that's just amazing. And they just have these tremendous platforms, as Alexis was saying, and they build their personal brands. And again, that data needs to get to brands that want to support these athletes once they come out of the NCAA. I realize they have their, you know, name, image, likeness stuff going on. But um, when they enter the next phase of their careers, they take their platforms with them. And we need to do a better job, I think, on the professional women's side of taking that and, and maximizing it and amplifying it. And the NCAA, I mean, I, I made my statements very public. Like the NCAA has a lot of work to do to support the women and, and not just the gym scandal, but just broadly. Like it's, it is a joke that you have so many stars, like stars who have more attention, more eyeballs, more community. Forget, I, like when I hear statistics about the television screens now, I still get a little like, okay, that's nice. But it, it just reminds me of what the executives at Quibi we're talking about like no one wants to watch teenagers on their phones doing silly dances like we've we're quibby we've got billions of dollars to make content and tell people what they want like that's what it sounds like to me and and i i don't care what the ncaa says about view that's bullshit it's just that is it's quibby execs being like no oh, those kids whatever we know what the people want no like the democratized the free market of people. Everyone has a smartphone. Everyone's got an Instagram account. Everyone's got a Twitter account. The free market has said the women stars of the NCAA are more popular. They have more followers. They have more eyeballs. That's more value. <laughs> and so you start seeing that piling up and it's, 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 it's negligent, let's say at the very least, to not be investing more. And like, I got plenty of complaints in NCAA, but I, it's, it, I, Kathy, it just, yes. <laughs> yeah, I, and, and, and I, 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 I would love to riff on what both Kathy and Alexis said too, just because um, this was like a really interesting discussion point for us when I was at Visa as well, where um, ahead of you know we were a FIFA World Cup partner, longstanding. Um, we were going to activate the best, you know, to, uh, for our brand, like we were going all in on the 2019 Women's World Cup as, you know, an opportunity for our brand. And in order to do that, we wanted to secure the best team in the world as part of that, which was the U.S. Women's National Team. We could not do a deal just with the U.S. We were actually, it was impossible to just do a deal at that time with the U.S. Women's National Team. We were required to do both. Oh, both men and women. Men. We only came the to the table as a brand to talk about the women and yet we were held. And it, it's like that inverse thing because that is so often what happens is that brands come into these things and like the women's sport is an afterthought, and, you know, a la actually the World Cup itself when the way FIFA sells currently. And what was so interesting about that, and I just look at like 2019 is coming out of that, even FIFA I know was entertaining. Okay, do we take the step to actually break apart the sales structure on this so that we can ensure that the brands that are investing in the Women's World Cup are actually investing in the Women's World Cup. And it's not an afterthought. It's not a byproduct of actually securing the rights to the men's tournament. Um, and there was a lot of debate. I remember I sat on a, on a panel at the World Cup, uh, at the 2019 World Cup to talk about that very thing. 
all women in the audience except for the white men in suits in the front row representing FIFA. And, you know, it's it's an interesting conversation right now because I, I think as these athletes, what you're seeing right now with the W players, the NWSL players owning their platform, that power is, is changing the game um, and changing the value of the women's brand too, just from a pure economics perspective. Um, and so I think where, where women's leagues can give their female athletes even more platform to express and be themselves and build their own brand, like that's only good for the women's game overall. And brands are going to turn to that more and more. Well, and I think now seeing that there's women, former athletes who are, or even current athletes with Naomi Osaka and the North Carolina Cougar and the NWSL, obviously Serena with Angel City, um, and then Renee Montgomery uh, with Atlanta as part of the, as part of the ownership groups, it starts to look different too, because they're promoting their own causes. But, um, and, and it isn't just men who are making those decisions, but I wanted to just, in light of, we're going to questions after this, but. So we have this amazing grassroots support. We're seeing big movements. We have these institutional obstacles. I mean, Kate, that example is actually mind boggling to me. Alexis, I think it's what you said and saw with the NCAA tournament where the women's basketball rights were sold along with a bunch of other, uh, a bunch of other NCAA tournament rights uh, for other sports. And so we know that there's a huge potential. What do you think right now is the single most important thing, aside from the athlete stuff that you guys have talked about, that we can have um, ask fans and supporters to do to help move, continue to move this forward? So, I mean, I, I'll speak on the, um, not so much the fan side, but on the, um, you have to have diversity in the room wherever decisions are being made to support um, and, um, you know, there's so much data that shows that the more diversity there is when you make decisions, the better it is on behalf of women and women's sports. So, um, and also um, we all need to, again, support women in their life cycle of being a mom with motherhood and maternity benefits and other, you know, uh, life cycle benefits that, you know, was important to me when I came in the league four days in and was doing a collective bargaining agreement and said, wait a minute, we don't pay full maternity leave. Wait a minute. We don't have fertility benefits. We don't have this, that, and the other thing. So, you know, but I, I think having diversity in the room wherever decisions are being made to me is number one, um, absent the valuation model that we're going to try to transform. So Alexis, I'm going to call you. You're going to help me transform yeah. that valuation model. Peter, Alexis, any comments? Yeah, go ahead, Alexis. Is like, start, start talking. I mean, keep talking online. Uh, and if you can afford to talk with your dollars, um, and I'm not just saying this because we do have seat deposits available for Angel, Angel City right now, but also just broadly, I mean, get get a seat deposit for your local NWSL or WNBA club. And it's certainly if you're if you're going to be one of our rivals, like start trash talking me on Twitter. Like, I love that. Um, like, get engaged and use this high leverage vehicle we have that is social media. Find I guarantee there's a supporter group. Um, find and tap into those communities. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, and it's also going to feel really, really good to see, to be a part of this. And I, I really mean it. It is a kind of religious fervor that I feel so fortunate now to have been tapped into because like, I look, I had never watched a, a women's football match before the World Cup in 2019. And I was at the match. A friend of mine invited me. He was like, you got to see it. And it was in Paris, France versus the US. I think it was the quarterfinals. And it was amazing, right? It was a packed arena, people just screaming their faces off, men, women, children, didn't matter. It was electric. 
And, and that's what shook, it shook me because I realized this is one of the best sporting environments I've ever been in. And I didn't even know, I didn't even know the I didn't even know what the NWSL was. And, and I was that ignorant. Why was that ignorant? Because yeah, the, the people who have dictated media consumption just didn't put it on my screen on ESPN when I was a kid growing up, but that's fine. Fuck them. I don't know if I could say that, but like that, the nature of what the social media revolution has done is connect supply with demand. We have the supply, we have the best talent in the world and the demand is here and it's showing up. And so watch, talk about it, spend the money if you can to support and see even my dog agrees. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, just building on what Alexis said, I think um, I'm really interested to watch TikTok's partnership with Euros 2020 this summer because um, like the power is in the younger audience's hands right now. I mean, you know, like, don't even get me started on the lack of inventory there is to invest in from a media point of view, even if you wanted to as a brand for for, for women's live broadcasts. But that's like, I, I think just with watching how content and the platforms are evolving to meet the younger audiences where they are. I mean, the younger audiences are not coming to live broadcasts the way they once were. And so it means the whole industry has to shift to where they are. Um, and so the power that these younger audiences have in terms of the types of content that they're demanding, how they want to engage with the sporting experience, the player, the behind the scenes, like that's the part that I'm really interested to see evolve from the Olympics, you know, and the World Cup through to Euros this summer with TikTok. I think um, I think it's going to be fascinating because this whole kind of sentiment of FOMO too in a world where um, we're coming out of, of everyone being locked at home, you know, um, the the in-person experience, I think there's still going to be a real appetite. I was talking to Tim Lewicki earlier in December about kind of how coming out of this, it'll be like the roaring 2020s all over again, or the roaring 20s all over again, only the roaring 2020s, meaning everyone's going to be passionate about the live experiences. And yet that said, like what a live experience means to a younger fan and a younger audience is very different. It's like getting to go into esports and play the game with the athletes that they're playing with, you know, because now athletes are in the games themselves as avatars. I just, the, the whole ecosystem is changing. And I, that's what, that is why now because we're, we're like at a catalyst moment where I think things are just going to continue to evolve at a rapid pace. You know, one thing that's interesting, and I would love to get your take on this, is there's a number of athletic directors who are saying that the nil, the name, image, and likeness uh, that's going to be happening in college in, in the coming year is potentially going to negatively affect Title IX and women's sports. I'd love to get your perspective, because obviously that's feeding into the professional sports leagues. What can and should we be doing, or what are your thoughts on that particular conversation that really percolated this past, past week? Yeah, Jess, I am, uh, you know, I was asked, I think I was like two months on the job and I was asked because the the name image likeness was just being debated at the NCAA level. And uh, I, my first reaction was, oh, here's another thing where the valuation of women is going to be way behind uh, very quickly. Although, you know, I'm very uh, optimistic about those NCAA stats I threw out about followerships on the NCAA women's basketball uh, tournament. But um but I, I do think, again, this is I, I hate to keep like Groundhog Day around the valuation model, but, the, you know, the valuation model will be different. The women will be undervalued, I assure you. And that's why I think no matter how great we all do individually, if we don't transform what the metrics are that will feed into that name, image and likeness, women will fall behind. I assure you of that. So we need to so glad you brought it up because we need to keep our eye on this as a major issue should that get passed and should both men and women alike in the NCAA be able to sell a name image likeness? 
I mean, there's just a general question of, you know, we had Title IX, it impacted uh, all the women on this panel, Alexis, you a little by, uh, by association. But I mean, is there something else that needs to be done there that you, I, I mean, I'm talking out loud here, but that you guys are thinking of that we should be calling on at a broader level as a result of this? Well, again, I'll comment because I do a lot of thinking about the future and, you know, as Alexa said, how we, we can't go much lower as far as the economic model around women's sports, but you can really grow it. And but the way you need to grow it is to have a, a patch on the uniform, a placement on the court, a media right valued higher. And, and the way you do that is you get compelling content. You build rivalries and you build household names that people really want to watch because until that valuation model shifts, that's what we're left with um, uh, companies evaluating. So, I mean, again, I'm very optimistic about this, but it's it's a long term issue that we have to transform. Yeah, All right, we have like, oh, sorry, go Alexis. I really I, I'm I'm optimistic only because I mean, I spend my time talking to entrepreneurs, building these new types of platforms. Um, I backed a football startup called Gloria that's creating like the home of football online. And one of the things they think about today is how do we help people on the platform monetize and how do we do so in a way that lets them make money from their fans, from their community in the same way that like the creator economy has allowed people to become millionaires, just making fun videos on YouTube or TikTok dances, right? Why are they making money? Because they have fans who want a direct relationship that's facilitated through software. Okay, fans who want a direct relationship through software. If if some dude in in Nebraska can make a living doing tick uh, not TikTok videos, YouTube videos of acapella video game theme songs, which is a thing, then surely these women who we know are more engaging, uh, more compelling than their male counterparts online on social can find a way to. And so part of it is right. Athletes today are giving away their content to platforms that they don't really need. Mm. And this is why I'm so long on sports over the next 10 years. So, you know, on Instagram, if you're in the business of entertainment in say film, you need Instagram for cultural relevance because that helps make sure people watch your next movie or next whatever. Sport, however, has a monopoly on cultural relevance because there's only one championship. And you talked about the FOMO, like if you miss it, then you miss it. And there's this objective rating of who is the greatest. So. Every other type of entertainment is at odds, rest in peace, Quibi, with social media and innovation because it's distracting, it's taking attention away. Whereas in sport, it's actually complementary. And so, you know, do these stars need Instagram? Not really, because people will follow them. The reason they are culturally relevant is not because they just posted a new photo on Instagram, like every other type of entertainer. It's because they're amazing on and off the field or the court or the pitch or what have you. And so new platforms are coming. The second wave yep. is already it's already coming up and the business models are baked into it. And so like, you know, a star like Alex Morgan gives away so much of her value to Mark Zuckerberg who runs ads that like Procter and Gamble are really happy with, but Alex doesn't get anything for. And you go down the list of all these stars and it's like, yo, that's a huge weakness. And so I guess my call is like, for entrepreneurs and people thinking about building this stuff, this to me is one of the most obvious opportunities. And so I hope this infrastructure keeps getting better and better. And we see this, this because I do think NCAA players should be getting paid for their name and likeness and more. Um, I actually think it comes up as a huge surprise because women then start actually outperforming 
their male counterparts at the collegiate level. And then all of a sudden we're having a different conversation, right? Then we're having the conversations that don't get had in public, which is, you know, why is the U.S. women's national team carrying the men's team when it comes to brand partnerships and yet they still have to fight for equal pay? Because that's bullshit. And so you get more and more data to support where dollars really want to flow in the, in the much more free and honest market. And I think it shifts all the other discussions uh, because you can't, you can't argue with it. And I just, I, I can see this and I can watch these platforms emerge and, and I'm, I'm optimistic, let's say. Well, I love it. Kathy, Alexis, Kate, thank you so much for everyone watching. Invest in sports, women's sports, watch women's sports, and uh, let's, let's continue to make women's sports more and more relevant. Thank you all. Thank you, Jess. Thank you so much. This recording is the property of 42 Analytics and may not be published, broadcast, rewritten, or redistributed without the express written consent of 42 Analytics. Any opinions expressed by panelists are their own and do not represent the beliefs of the conference, 42 Analytics, or the MIT Sloan School of Management. 42 Analytics Educational, Inc. reserves all rights in the content.